Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. For those of you not familiar with Scripture or new to the Scriptures, uh, Nehemiah is uh, in the middle of the book. You go to the very middle, which would be the book, kind of the Psalms, and then you turn left, and you'll find Nehemiah there a few books prior. And while we go to Nehemiah, uh, we're going to start a new series today. We've been working out of Philippians for a while, and now we get the joys of being in Nehemiah. And, and we come, especially in light of all that's been going on coming out of COVID or maybe going back, we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, and as we really try to restart life together, it felt ter- certainly right that we turn to a book that talks all about how God rebuilds and restores lives in community, how God rebuilds and restores lives in community. And our hero is a guy named Nehemiah, and uh, he gives us a first-person account of what God did with and through him, rebuilding life and rebuilding a kingdom in the process. So let's jump off, starting with verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1. And it says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your dispersed be under the further skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So rebuilding is hard but worth it. Rebuilding is hard but worth it. I mean, we like rebuilding stories. We love the comeback stories in sports. We see it in corporate turnaround stories. 
We're drawn to the story of the thing that has gone bad for a time, ultimately making for a good turn. Now, along these lines, Elizabeth, my wife, has turned me on to these fixer-upper shows like Chip and jo Joanna Gaines have in uh, The Fixer-Upper. Now, lately, the it couple in fixer-upper shows has been Ben and Aaron Napier who live in this little Mississippi town called Laurel, Mississippi. And what they do is they go around fixing up homes, and, and particularly in their case, they're passionate about fixing up homes in small towns, which have taken a hit in the last few decades with the urbanization of America. The formula's in the, the same throughout these shows. Folks like the Gaines or Napiers have a vision to renovate a home, uh, the house they work on is usually abandoned or old or really dated or in some cases even dangerous. And they tear out the old stuff and rotted things and put in a new, rebuilt inside, be it renovation or redecorating from the inside and even the out. Then comes the exciting part. You know, you get to the end of the show and they have the big reveal where they show the, the new place to the people and to us and all that they've done. And, it, and there, there's just something refreshing, dare I say redemptive, about seeing a broken down and abandoned home being rebuilt and being made new. Rebuilding, in short, is that, redemption. It's redemption. And today we're going to start watching a gospel story of redemption and rebuilding in the book of Nehemiah. Now, we turn to this book because we've all been through seasons of life, and dare I say a pandemic, where all things seem broken at points. And sometimes we go through seasons of life where things seem broken for a really long time. Nehemiah is a restoration story about a people and a place where things have been broken down for a long, long time, but where God had, was going to rebuild that people and rebuild that place through a hero. We're going to spend the coming months exploring this gospel of rebuilding and restoration. And as we start watching this gospel story unfold, we're going to ask questions like this for today. Where does rebuilding in hope begin with God? And what does real heroism in rebuilding look like for our hero and for us? Our book starts off with a bang to answer these questions, and it starts off with our very first verses, which introduce us to our hero, and, and starting in verse 1, look at that with me, where it gives us the starting point of rebuilding. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, say that three times real fast, and now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures or aren't familiar with the scriptures or are new to the faith, this doesn't seem like a very much of a big bang at first glance. Sounds like a historic account 
about a guy named Nehemiah meets with his brother who brings back what tends to look like bad news from the homeland and from their family. But what you may not realize is that Nehemiah uh, is living in Susa, which around 445 B.C. uh, was the center of the world at the time. It would be a little bit like New York City or London or Paris or today, really, like Washington, D.C., the center of power. It was the place where the most powerful king in the biggest superpower of the world actually lived. Now, Susa today uh, then was called Persia uh, in what we now call Iran. And the king, who was the king in place, the king of kings at that time, was Artaxerxes. And he oversaw the Persian Empire, which had conquered superpower Babylon, and which also had then earlier, 140 years later, conquered Judah and exiled God's people. So this big brother brings news to the Washington, D.C. of the world. And if you're in the center of power at that time, news from any part of the kingdom of that time was a big deal, and all over the Twitter feeds, all over the Facebook posts, all over the newspapers, it was everywhere. But even more intriguing, as we find out in verse 11, Nehemiah is in a position of influence in Artaxerxes' kingdom. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. Cupbearers were normally eunuchs who served on the king's court and served in a in a trusted position close to the king. It, it was a little bit like he was on the cabinet of the, United, of the president of the United States in our time and place. Uh, he, was, he had full access to the most powerful person in the world. Now, the story tells us that Nehemiah asked his brother, what's going on back in the homeland in Judah with our people uh, among the Jews? After all, Jews had escaped from the exile, and there were still Jews left over from the exile who were there. And they were back in the homeland and in Jerusalem in particular. But Hanani had a troubling story here. The text says that the people were struggling with two things. Did you catch what was in there in the verses? It said, generally, the remnant of God's people were in great trouble and shame, and specifically... Uh, The metaphor for that great trouble and shame was the walls and gates surrounding Jerusalem were still broken down and destroyed. You see, 140 years earlier, Babylon had come in and as an instrument of God's judgment, blown away Jerusalem and Judah and exiled the people. And in the process had destroyed, razed um, Jerusalem's city to the ground. Nehemiah's response to this is instructive. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't blow it off with indifference. Look at what he does in verse 4. Look at that with me. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He laments. He gets really sad for a season of time about what's going on. And he goes to God with his emotions and his sadness in prayer and fasting. Now, what exactly was he lamenting? Was it the wall and gates of the city of Jerusalem? Well, that mattered. That was important. But it was first the trouble and shame 
that the people had exper- were experiencing. It was the trouble and shame because the city of the pe- the, and the people of Jerusalem were, were not protected by a wall. They were likely hounded by terrorists and marauders, some of whom we're going to meet later on when we're going through Nehemiah. And the people were being threatened effectively with extinction again. They were, if you will, losing all their identity as a people. And that was lamentable. Now, I'm going to stop here and say how this kind of applies to us in in both um, uh, Nehemiah's response and in kind of how we live out our lives. See, when we get bad news about our culture or about about the church, maybe a church leader, and we've had a lot of that in recent years, it's easy to go to contempt. Or it's easy to blow it off with indifference. When we see the church be pushed around by the latest cultural crusade, it's easy to rage. And dare I say it, when our own lives seem overwhelmed with problems or we're going through rough time, it is easy to check out. But our hero does something different here. He goes to God with the sincerity of his sadness, his emotion. In the face of brokenness and hardness, he shows his humanity and weeps with the Lord. You know, while our lives can get hard at times and very real things go on in our lives, and while the culture rages about one thing or another, we're called to be different in our response and holy in our response to these things. We're to move past anger to weeping, just like Jesus wept at Jerusalem at our gates. You know why you want to do that? Because God listens when we weep. He weeps with those who weep. There's more to, to, to weep about regarding Nehemiah. Trouble and shame haunted the people uh, because of their backstory as well. Not only did they have the trouble of, of years, 140 years earlier in 586 B.C., God had judged his people. He'd kicked them out of the land in an exile sending them over to Babylon, and then some of those people made it from Babylon to Persia when Persia conquered Babylon. And he kicked them out of the land, though, for a reason, because of their idolatry, their over-reliance on politics, and their corrupt ways of systemic sin. That idolatry and compromise was still haunting the people at the time. And we know that if you read Ezra 9 or Nehemiah 13, that there's all this concern about the compromise of the people. So here's what's happening. Nehemiah is looking at the big story of his people over 140 years. He's looking at the sin and idolatry and the consequences of it, and the whole thing looks so big, so rough, that he weeps at the story of brokenness and the loss of dignity. Please note, our hero does not immediately try to fix the situation in this overwhelming problem. He is a person of influence and could jump right in if he wanted to, but instead for some period of time, and I like Derek Kidner's thoughts on this, maybe around three to six months, he goes to God and he prays over a period of time. Days is what it says in our text. Now, this is convicting for me personally. I'm an American male. So if you present me with a problem, I want to fix it right off the bat. That's my style, 
in my nature. Now, granted, fixing things may be appropriate in the moment if there's an immediate need, but here's one thing you'll find about all the heroes and sheroes of Scripture. When they're faced with something too big for them to handle, they go and do one thing before God each time. They pray. You see it with Moses seeking God before the Exodus. We see it with Jesus who was praying in his temptation right before he started his ministry, who prayed before he chose his apostles, and who prayed right before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pausing in prayer is the first work of the Christian when we seek to do big things with Jesus. Now, here's why this matters. Prayer centers us. It centers us on God as the true and sovereign king. You know, Nehemiah, with the problems he was faced, could have gone to the superpower king. He had access to him, Artaxerxes, and could have at that moment said, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to deal with this stuff right now. I've got the inside scoop to power. But where does he go first? To the God of the universe. Why? Because God is the king of kings. God is the great king who's over all kings. He went to him first. And that's instructive for us when we're tempted to be near places of power and have access to power in family or in government. Even with the president of the United States, don't go there first. Rebuilding starts with prayer to the king of kings. That's where it really starts. He's the sovereign king over all men. So clearly, Nehemiah went to the king of kings first in all this bad news. But what did Nehemiah, our hero, actually pray in light of this overwhelming problem? What did he ask for when he was presented with this issue? Well, this is where we can learn from his prayer. If Derek Kidner's right, and Nehemiah prayed about this issue for months Verses 5 through 11 tend to sum up the heart of the prayers that, uh, that um, Nehemiah brought before the Lord. And before we get into this prayer, I want to add for any Bible scholars who may be among us, Nehemiah's prayer, if you notice it and read it closely, actually has a similar structure to the Lord's Prayer. You got the address, you got a kind of hallowed be thy name thing, you got petitions, including a petition for conf of confession and deliverance. So, what, how does Nehemiah start? He begins uh, the prayer by seeking the Lord and addressing God as the God of heaven twice. Now, scholars say the God of heaven is how everybody described God, whatever religion you were in Persia at that time. It was kind of the, you know, how we talk about God in our culture just in general, even among people who aren't necessarily Christians. Well, that's how they talked about God then. It was the civil religion name for God. But Nehemiah adds one more name to the prayer. He says, the Lord God of heaven. Using the unique name of God, Yahweh, Nehemiah wasn't addressing just any God or a general civil God who's out there somewhere. He's addressing a particular God who is over and against all gods, all kings, all kingdoms, all history, and all nations. 
even over all tiny gods. He's the one who challenged the former superpower of the world in Scripture, Egypt. Egypt with Pharaoh back in Moses' time, and he crushed them. In other words, God, the God of heaven, the Lord God of heaven, is no one to be, to be trifled with or even treated with easy familiarity. This God can change history, yes, your my history, with a word. But he is also a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people. Do you see that? And here's what that means when Nehemiah invokes that steadfast love. Even when the people of God are running away from him and are compromising in their relationship with him, he stays committed to them. He is faithful in his love to the remnant. Now, this is really good news to us, to you and to me. If your heart is running from God, if you grew up following Jesus but have wandered for some time, even a long time, you should know that God is far more committed to you than you will ever be to him. He loves you and he will pursue you. His love is not fickle or capricious like human love is or our love is with people. He's very different. He's holy in his love. And he wants us to know him and wants us to be restored with him in a relationship. Nehemiah is praying in this prayer, God, you have the power and the love to rebuild these broken things. But he doesn't stop there in the prayer. He starts with adoration, but then he prays in a surprising way in verse 6. Did you guys see that in verse 6? This is great. He says this in verse 6, Let your ears be attentive, your eyes open, to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. And check this out. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. This is incredible. Nehemiah gets real by confessing sin. He, he doesn't bind a group think or cover up with a, we're good, and at least we're not as bad as those people over there who are all messed up like Republicans and Democrats or this race or that race. Nah, he's, he does what you're supposed to do. He says, we have blown it. We have to come clean with our own sin. We are guilty. No excuses. No excuses. And what's intriguing about Nehemiah's prayer is that he uses the word we, throwing himself in with the corrupt Israelites. And he comes right out and explicitly says, I and my father's house have been guilty of this sin too, this corruption, this idolatry and compromise. I've done it. There are no excuses before a holy God and Nehemiah comes clean about that. What we're seeing here is a prayer of repentance. Repentance is where we are walking in a path away from God, following another God, following our own selves, and we do a turn away from that life to follow the one true God in his way. This repentance begins with an assessment of our own culpability in the trouble and shame that is going on. Jesus himself talked about this when he taught in Matthew 7 that we should get the log out of our own eye before we start pointing it out in other people's lives. 
The way of the world is to spin, deny, blame, shift, or do anything to look good or at least look better than that guy over there. But our hero comes clean and tells the truth about himself and his people before God and before the world. And you know what's interesting about this? He's writing this in the first person. Guys, he's confessing before us in his own hand saying, I did it. I did it. By the way, that's another sign of good repentance. Is there no excuses like, I'm responsible, I'm culpable, I did it. What about us? Are you telling the truth about yourself first with the Lord and then with others? Are you telling the truth are we telling truth about ourselves, even as a body? <laughs> Rebuilding begins when you take responsibility. It's the tearing out of old rotted wood so you can replace it with the new. And I might add, good leaders start rooting out the rotted wood in themselves first. Nehemiah is being a first repenter here. My wife Elizabeth likes to repurpose things. Some years back, I came home and I found in our garage in our last house a bunch of doors, big doors, the big, thick wooden doors you find at school or in a business park that go to offices and to rooms. And they were all over our, our garage. And I walked in and go, what in the world is this about? And Elizabeth said, you'll see. I was like, okay. Well, some months later, she wanted to renovate and do some work on our kitchen. And, uh, and we have a little deal that uh, I don't like chaos that much, especially when she does some big project in the house. So when I go away to things like General Assembly, she'll kind of go crazy and do some stuff at the house. That's our little deal together. And... Um, so I went to General Simon, I came back, and when I walked into our kitchen, it was unbelievable. She had done an amazing job. There was paint on our cabinets. The whole place looked radically different. But the most surprising thing were the new countertops. You know what the new countertops were? Those doors. She had taken those big, thick wooden doors, fitted them, cut them, did it all herself. She had lacquered the whole thing. I mean, they looked really, really good. And I was like, holy smokes, honey, look at what you did. My wife's really talented. I'm really proud of her, as you can tell. You see, Elizabeth had a vision of what the kitchen could be with those doors. And in the same way, Nehemiah got, believed that God could rebuild and repurpose his people and his kingdom. And that started with prayers of, con of adoration. It started with prayers of confession. But then he took that vision and started asking God with a request. So what does he ask of God? If you look at verses 8 through 11, he gets really clear. He asked God to listen multiple times. And you got to think at this point, why does he ask God to listen? Why should God listen? After all, the people have been hard. They've been compromising. They've wandered off from him. Well, the Scripture itself tells us because God promised that he would engage and rebuild 
himself. Look at verse 8 with me. Uh, This is what Nehemiah prays. He's praying to God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through, though you're dispersed be under the further skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen. You know what Nehemiah is doing here, guys? He is quoting Scripture to God. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 30 to remind God that Moses had predicted that the people would actually blow it. Do you know that? When the people blow it and are exiled in in, uh, the Old Testament, God had actually laid out the whole plan back in Deuteronomy and said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to blow it. But then he makes this promise that I will gather you. I will bring you together. I'll redeem you. I'll come after you. And I will love you. And that's what he is doing in our text here. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, you promised. You saved us at the Exodus. Can you save us again here in this circumstance? Now, what's going on here that would apply to us here? Well, what's happening is first this, that Nehemiah is being bold to ask for something big the renewal and rebuilding of a people. And William Carey, the great missionary, once said, expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. I also like what our friend Randy Pope says. He says, ask God for such big things that it's destined to fail unless God pulls it off for you. We always begin our lives with prayer for the big things because God can save us from any circumstance, anything. Now, we highlight the biggest circumstances from our sin and our darkness at the cross. Historically, that's the focus of Christianity. But I think sometimes as Christians we forget God is actually interested in rescuing us from our circumstances to prove himself again and again as the one who cares for us in our daily lives. Could it be that our prayers are just sometimes too small? What is the one big thing that causes your heart to ache? And it's maybe done that for years and years. What is the one big thing that God alone could pull off for you? You have not because you ask not. Something else is happening here. Nehemiah is interceding for the people, just like Moses did for Israel after they blew up spiritually. Sometimes, don't we need to know that someone is praying for us and with us? I mean, it's great when we do the intercession with each other, and we do that in our life groups and other venues. In fact, maybe one of the most dignifying things we can do with each other is when you say, would you please pray for me? But don't miss the gospel. There is someone greater praying. The real hero is Christ, who is actually praying for you and for me at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. And he even gives us the Holy Spirit to fill us so that the Spirit prays with us, according to Romans 8. Now, we're going to see prayer quite a bit in the book of Nehemiah and come back to this and learning some things about prayer. But I'm pleased to announce today that we will, Lord willing, 
and COVID willing, have our first conference as a church the first weekend of October. We will be bringing our friends in from See Jesus, and they're going to talk about prayer that weekend. If you feel overwhelmed by things that are happening and just want to escape, if you feel overwhelmed by culture or pandemic or even big things in your own life, come and learn more about prayer at our Praying Life Conference that we're having in October. I think it'll be a good experience and a great place to center together with Jesus. Nehemiah, likewise, spent a season of prayer asking God for this big thing, the rebuilding and restoration of his people. But he also prayed for one last thing. Did you see in our text? He prayed to gain the favor of this man, which man is he talking about? Well, it's the king, Artaxerxes. He wanted God to prepare Artaxerxes for this bold request that he's going to provide. We'll see next week. Nehemiah, in other words, is asking about the asking. Nehemiah comes with boldness in the asking. And you've got to ask, how can he do this? How can he come with such boldness? And let's ask it a personal way. How can you and I come with such boldness to the God of the universe when we struggle with our own unholiness and our own brokenness? Well, our text tells us in the very last line, look at verse 11. It's actually the gospel. This is what Nehemiah says. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. I mean, we know the, the cupbearer has access to the king, but here's what you need to know about cupbearers. Their job was simple. They chose and tasted the wine or drink for the king so he wouldn't be poisoned. In other words, Nehemiah put his life on the line for a pagan king and a pagan people, and now he wants to put his life on the line for his own people so they'd be rescued from their trouble and shame. And what's that got to do with us? Folks, don't see yourself as Nehemiah here. See yourself as the people in trouble and shame. See yourself as a broken city longing for a Savior to restore you. And see this, Jesus is the hero. He put his life on the line for you. He drank the cup of wrath and died on the cross for you and me, taking on that sin. He was the ultimate cupbearer for the Father so that you and I might experience redemption so that he might rebuild our lives. Rebuilding is hard. Rebuilding takes prayer. It takes weeping sometimes. It takes confession. But here's the thing. Rebuilding always starts with a hero who puts his life on the line for you at the cross. To that end, let's pray to him as we come to his table. Lord Jesus, all of us come here today and we look at our culture, we look at our families, we look at our stories, we look at our own lives, and we all have things that we struggle with and see that feel too big.
And we ask you, Lord, today to be our cupbearer, to be the one who speaks for us at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the one who drank the cup of wrath so that we might be forgiven and would be able to ask the King, you, Father, ourselves. We pray today, Lord, that you would open our eyes to give us a vision of rebuilding and redemption and the fact that you can carry out anything you want in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.